Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future presented by Georgia Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer and it has been, I think, exactly a month. Has it really been a whole month? We last posted an episode and we're going to explain why in a moment. Um, I can't believe we got to episode 30 as well. It's such a great way to kick off 2019. It also felt really impossible at the beginning. It just like a one episode felt. But yes, we took a break over Christmas and then coming back we're going to have a few, you know, a few change a few life changes have happened yeah. since we've spoken to you last. It's been a big month. The most significant one being Shah, who is moving to Edinburgh, which is very exciting. Yes. So, when did you decide to move? On the 20 no, 19th of December, yeah. probably, around then. Started yeah. looking at flats in Edinburgh rather than in London, having had complications with my flat in London. Mm, for about so, nine months, I would say. Or, like, longer. Yeah, it's been a while. It, t- it, t- it took a really long time. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, looked in Edinburgh just for... Uh, just to explore, really, because Rightmove is quite a fun website to have a little mm. scroll through. But did you... Was was the... But the idea about the flat, did that come first or the idea about changing how you worked came first? The flat came first. Okay. Um, I have wanted to work in a more freelance way for a while. Mm. And it feels like this flat and living closer to home and living in a lovely flat in Edinburgh feels an easier way to go freelance because it's not going to be in London where it's incredibly expensive. Mm. There's all sorts of elements to the decision. But basically... Found the flat on right move on the Tuesday, went to see it on the Wednesday, mm-hmm. offer Thursday, accepted Friday. Yeah. So within the space of four days, I'd very much changed yeah. what I thought you, my life was going to be like. And you called me on the Tuesday. <clears throat> yeah. The day you made the decision, you hadn't seen the flat yet. Yeah. But I hadn't spoken to you since the Friday before when we recorded with Minnie and Hugo. And yeah. I think it was the day the Christmas episode came out. Yeah. Is when you called and said. And what was so nice is that everything all kind of slotted into place very quickly and easily. Mm. And it all happened on the 21st of December, which is the winter solstice, which is all about kind of transitioning and changes. Mm. So I just quite liked that from a mm. symbolic perspective. <laughs> of course. But how was your Christmas and New Year? Uh, great. Uh, I, I guess that was hearing your news was quite a shock. So, um, but then felt very much like it was the right thing to do, actually. Um, and now I feel like you always should have been moving to Edinburgh. Um, so I'm quite excited about that. And I thought, I guess with the podcast, we are going to keep doing weekly episodes. We're not sure when we're going to come back yet, but we'll be very soon. So if you do like what we do, please hit subscribe yes. and then you won't miss when we come back. Yeah, so if you, yeah, subscribe now on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to this. And the next episode that we put up, you'll get in your subscription box. Uh, a like example to this is um, one of my favourite podcasts called Couples Therapy. Uh, one of the couple, one of the people in the couple decided they didn't want to do the podcast anymore um, in September. But I stayed subscribed, and lo and behold, <laughs> there's a new episode in. So <laughs> that's great. So, stay subscribed. Um, I have so many recommendations, by the way, and I really want to share them okay, in this. Go. Okay. Right. Normal people absolutely yeah. extraordinary novel this is going to hurt i feel like i've basically been catching up on things that you've told me to yeah. do for ages and i've finally now actually done it yeah. this is going to hurt i read it in three days right it is heartbreaking hilarious i was 
almost hysterically crying on the tube. Do you understand and looked, why I was talking to yeah. you the entire time? I was like, Charlotte, you've got to hear this, you've got to hear this. Yeah, it's so brilliant. And mm. it's very quick and easy to read because it's all short diary entries. Mm-hmm. I have so much respect for everybody who makes up anything to do with the NHS. Know, what amazing. a lifesaver, literally. Yeah. And just really eye-opening book. Really mm. recommend that. And Big Little Lies, finally <gasps> watched that. Did you? <laughs> you didn't tell me. I, saving it I was now. saving it until now. And? I mean... I was I liked it all the way through and then the final episode hits and mind blown. Right. That's all I'm gonna say. Oh Just my God, go and watch I was it. Like, I can tell the <laughs> and uh, great films out at the moment, Mary Poppins, hundred percent go and see that. Mm-hmm. It is the most uplifting, wonderful film. They mm-hmm. had such a high bar to even come close to and they really mm-hmm. did a brilliant job mm-hmm. at reinterpreting the original story the way that it was created the cartoons mm-hmm. the songs the characters but in a new way and i really loved that and brexit i know we're very bored of that but if you haven't seen the documentary which is called the uncivil war i'd really recommend having a look at that it's about the marketing campaigns that went on from both vote leave and remain and the digital analytics that went into it and the paid side of it and all of the data and the importance of the communications and the messages. It's just an interesting interpretation. Benedict Cumberbatch plays the main guy, Dominic Cummings. So yeah, definitely go and watch that Uncivil War. So there we go. Those are your recommendations. Yeah, normal people. This is going to hurt. Big Little Lies, Uncivil War, Mary Poppins. Well, what are my recommendations? So I also, normal people, um, absolutely brilliant. I'm about to start, um, actually I actually haven't finished it, but I always do this with really good books. Um, I stop about like a chapter before the end and leave it for about a month. Why um, do you do that? It's really weird. I don't know. I, I just, just want cause to I don't finish want, things. Because I don't want it to end. And then I start something new. So I'm starting Conversation with Friends, which is another book by Sally Rooney. Who also wrote, wrote Normal People. Yeah, she wrote Before Normal People. Um, I'm also absolutely loving um, the autobiography by Mel B, which <gasps> I, I... really want to read that. Which I first heard about on the Hilo, on... Uh, Woman's Hour. Happy Place, Women's <clears throat> Hour, Table Manners. I really she want basically to read Lily po- Allen's as She well. did the podcast circuit. Yeah, so did Lily Allen. Yeah. Um, and Bryony Gordon has a new podcast called If I Can Do It. Also brilliant. Another which recommendation. Which is really good. And I heard Mel B's interview on that. So there, good. And I thought, oh, I really want to read it. Because I just... The thing with domestic abuse is I really wanted to learn more about it and understand how people can fall into different patterns of behaviour and patterns mm-hmm. of manipulation and why it happens. Big Little Lies is a really interesting insight into that as well. Absolutely. That's kind of why I found, I found that arc mm. the most interesting mm-hmm. one. Because I, mm-hmm. I find it so absolutely extraordinary and baffling um, that so many women can be victims of this and how horrendous it is. And how but they don't leave. To, and they don't leave. And, you, and, and she really goes into detail why mm. that happens. Even someone like Scary Spice, who is very mm-hmm. well off in her own right, mm-hmm. very powerful in her own right, why that isn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I know what it's like to feel when someone else, you know, changes the way you think about yourself, whether that's some kind of mental health issue, whether that's another person who's very manipulative. So I can kind of sort of relate on that level but I just was really curious to see what it would be like. Mm. So I finished that. 
Um, and I also really want to read Richard Branson's autobiography because I've heard it's really good. Mm. Um, so many great autobiographies. Yeah, I'm really kind of getting into After Michelle Obama's, that's really got yes. me into a... And you know, it's now beaten or equaled the record for Fifty Shades of Grey, which was on the number one Amazon list. For oh, wow. Something, yeah, whatever the record, it's beaten that record. God, it's like, thank God it. we've knocked the Fifty Shades off. I know, that's from 2012. <laughs> oh my God. Eight years to wow. change the record. Wow. So, and also, I saw the favorite. We saw the favorite, mm-hmm. as which well. we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, but that's been getting so much press. Mm-hmm. The um, other thing that's been getting so much press is the Gillette advert. Absolutely. So, go. What are your views? Okay. Um, so, when I first watched the advert, I just thought, yeah, this is a really positive message and positive example of how we should treat other people. Um, and we need to explain what's in the advert. Yes. For anyone who hasn't seen it, it is tackling the topic of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. from Gillette, which is obviously traditionally very masculine brand. Mm, the best the man can get is the tagline. <clears throat> so they've changed that to be the best the man can be. Mm-hmm. And they're calling out men who don't call out other men. Yeah. In a way. Calling I don't think that I think it's more Yes, it's calling out, but it's calling out bad behaviour full stop. It's not mm-hmm. It's not saying like, oh, um, every man is like this, or every man is Although responsible. Twitter would have a different opinion to that. Yeah, well, yeah. but you know, it just proves that it needed to be said, in my opinion, the backlash. Yeah, I do agree with that. Um, like this, it just proves it. Um, and actually, I just think it's quite a positive, empowering message um, as to how we should call people out. And it's there's that empathy it's like, would you like to be treated this way? Would you like to be, you know, I don't mm. know, punched? Would you like to be assaulted? Would you like to have people looking Cat at you? Cat call you. Cat call you, no. Yeah. So therefore, maybe we should consider how we treat other people. And I thought it was positive. Yeah. I think that it is, I obviously agree wholeheartedly with the sentiment. I find it a bit weird that we've got huge brands who seem to be jumping on the bandwagon where if you look at everything they've done up to now Mm. it feels really incongruent Mm -hmm. and it feels a bit forced and knowing that they were going to get a lot of press for it Mm -hmm. and a bit disingenuous but But then if there's any message they're going to jump on this is a good one to raise awareness for and also the question is how do we how do we create social change yeah how do we create it by getting people who have a huge platform talking yeah. about certain issues true i think that some of the scenarios that they showed in the advert were a little bit patronizing and a bit surface level Which ones? just the, like pulling two boys playing on you know in the grass apart like mm. we all play fight but boys girls mm. everybody mm. and i think that was a bit mm. my brother said that that scene was in particular he said it actually it's a bit Thing is, I know what they're trying to say. Yeah, but it, then I, I don't think that they um, give they gave enough thought to right. how they were I trying to say. I think what they should have done is maybe shown a fu- well, they did actually later on, but like a fight about to break out and someone about to hit someone. It's like wrestling actually is a very natural, normal thing for young boys to do. And Teddy and girls uh, and girls, but I think it, I think most of the time mm. it is quite a test. You know, it, mm. you know, young men. And he also said that young men who wrestle when they're younger he said he saw this stat that they're less likely to develop adhd or something when they're older mm. because they're they, they're letting out this aggression but there's also a boundary interesting um kind of like when when you you know something like boxing yeah you know, for obviously for more adults not six-year-olds you know it's a way to let out aggression it's a way to sort of fight as it were but there are hard lines mm. and you don't mm-hmm. hurt someone really mm-hmm. i think the interesting thing about this advert is the different reactions to 
from men and women. I saw a couple of tweets which were saying how adverts frequently tell women how they should look and behave mm. and we don't really kick up a fight and a storm about it. Mm. One advert tells men how they shouldn't. supposedly shouldn't or should behave and everyone goes absolutely mental and yeah. says that they're never going to buy anything from Gillette again and that they've alienated Gosh, their entire market. They wouldn't have any women buying stuff. Yeah. But I mean, I guess when everything happened with Philip Green and the sexual abuse allegations, there were a couple of people who said, I won't buy from Topshop. But most people were more realistic than that and thought it's not just about Philip Green and Topshop. There are so many other people involved in Topshop. So mm. I'm not going to boycott it. Mm. But if people do boycott Gillette, it won't necessarily be a bad thing because hopefully they'll buy more bamboo razors from Bulldog, which are great. <laughs> but the marketing of that True. annoys me even more because they, yeah, because they say understands men. I'm a woman and I buy bulldog razors because they're bamboo help, like handles and they're really lovely and they're really nice. Oh, Way they're more effective and they're also cheaper generally to buy men's razors than it is women's razors. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think what it is with the Gillette <laughs> advert is it's like, we need to remember it's looking at toxic masculinity, not masculinity. Yeah. You can still be all of those sentiments that are, I don't know, stereotypically masculine. Mm-hmm. And still not assault someone, still not beat someone up. And that if you see that behaviour going on, you stop it. You can do that. It's not about... Mm. Yeah. I I like that it started so many conversations, but it... Yeah. It's... I'm mixed feelings, is my... (laughs) That's what we like here at The Figure. (laughs) The first figure that we're going to talk about today is Queen Anne who was born in 1665 and ruled from 1702 to 1714 when she died. She was the first ruler of Great Britain, so Scotland and England were joined in 1707. Mm. Which is really significant. I I I don't think enough people know that Mm -hmm. um, because the rulers that had happened before were, you know, James I of England but James VI of Scotland. They were still separate entities, so she was the first monarch of Great Britain. Yeah. And I think that um, in many ways she isn't a memorable queen where if I was at school, I've done Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, Mm. Queen... It's Queen Anne you wouldn't have as a topic. I think a lot of people say, was she a queen? You've heard of Anne Boleyn, you've heard of Princess Anne, you know, Queen Elizabeth's daughter, but you haven't heard of Queen Anne. There were significant naval triumphs at the time uh, under the Duke of Marlborough. Um, so actually, it was quite a significant period of time, and we had just had William and Mary as joint monarchs. They were the first joint monarchs. Mary was Anne's older sister, and William was their first cousin, who was Protestant, Dutch Protestant, um, and invaded Britain um, and took over from James II, who was Catholic. So there's just so many weird dynamics going on. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, you, it's weird that we wouldn't know about her. Yeah, and I think that this is what the film, The Favourite, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, which has just come out, and which I didn't add to my list of recommendations. I think it's an interesting thing to go and see, but it's not something where... (laughs) I came out of the film, we saw something we we knew, and they asked if we enjoyed it. It's not something where I'm going to be like, yes, I really enjoyed it. (laughs) But I thought it was very interesting interpretation of Queen Anne as a character and the people who were significant in her life, including Sarah Churchill, Churchill, previously Sarah Jennings. Yeah, 
then married the Duke of Marlborough. So she was yeah. Lady Marlborough. Yes. And Abigail, I don't know what her original name was, but she became Abigail Masham. She had a secret wedding, which was... Mm. And that was an interesting scene, actually, in the film. Mm. It took a secret wedding that took place while Sarah was outside of the court. She wasn't there at the time. She was to do with the privy purse. She had kind of quite a lot of financial... Abigail. No, Sarah. Sarah. Sarah she had a lot of like Sarah financial comp- control. Completely ran her court. And the, the dowry court. came out of what Sarah should have been able to control. And so that was a sort of element of this power dynamic that is played out between these three women throughout the film mm. who are played by... So Rachel Wise plays Lady Marlborough, Emma Stone plays Abigail, and then Olivia Colman plays Queen Anne. And it is the most phenomenal performance. In terms of acting, I'm so glad that I went to Olivia see it. Coleman at all in the character. I mean, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz were also amazing, but Olivia Colman was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and I think the story of Queen Anne is so tragic. She experienced so much loss. Uh, her mother at a young age, her grandmother who raised her, another aunt. Uh, she had 17 pregnancies, some of which resulted in stillbirths or children that died really early on. Um, and miscarriages and miscarriages and you know she was desperate to have an heir because this was the last Stuart mm-hmm. so after Queen Anne it goes to George the first of Hanover and that's where the German connection comes in you know how we always say the royal mm-hmm. family is actually German mm-hmm. well, that's why it's because from 1714 it was literally the German royal family because she didn't have an heir didn't have an heir and they were very distantly related mm-hmm. way back mm-hmm. um, so it's it, yeah it's a significant story and actually i think that the film really portrays this tragedy um when i came away from it and i came home i just it, it, it stuck with me for several hours similar to how black swan affected me i just thought i don't really want to see that again but i'm glad i did see it because they're exploring something interesting here mm-hmm. and especially when it comes to sex scenes that you see in films or on tv it's so rare to see you never see female 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 sex scenes that are quite confronting in a way that it's not supposed to be like there are elements of it romantic but a lot Mm. of it where it's just quite but you see blunt but you see male and females having sex really casually really bluntly totally totally outrageously all the time yeah and when i was watching the sex scenes because it's comedic you never see female and female sex scenes in mainstream anything films yeah. unless it's really the film is really really about female female relationships mm-hmm. and actually females have been having sexual relations between them for centuries as have men but we don't see that in film and i think mm. that was really important as well as seeing the three main characters being women definitely passed the Vecnell test mm. many times um and a film that i think in 2019 was ready to be received. I don't think that would have been the case to I agree. Ago. Yeah, I really agree. And the reviews have been just, yeah, rave reviews. Um, artistically, it's quite a strange thing to watch as well. There are lots of very funny angles mm-hmm. where it's often shot from below, which mm-hmm. again adds to the whole power dynamic that yeah. they're exploring between these three women. Yeah. You, con- you constantly feel like you're looking up yeah. to them. Yeah. Even though, I think Queen Anne was quite a small person. Yeah. Um, Sarah Churchill always had power over her. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And made all her decisions as well. In yeah, court. totally. So they met when Anne was eight and Sarah was 13. Mm-hmm. 
um, which was an interesting detail to research afterwards because immediately you've got that you're looking up to somebody. If you remember someone who was 13 when you were eight, you just thought, oh my gosh, they're so much older and wiser and they cooler, cooler than me. Mm. And that seemed to continue all the mm. way until the very cliff edge end of their relationship, which nobody really knows why right. that came about. There yeah. were suspected blackmail with mm. these letters that I think Sarah it's, what, it's, just, it's also wrote. very common if, if two people are lovers mm. and they fall out mm. you know it's like a breakup isn't it mm-hmm. I don't know I suspect that mm-hmm. probably was yeah I think there were there were also elements of very much dramatisation and artistic licence within the film some of which I think worked really well particularly the rabbits which I don't know if Queen Anne ever had a rabbit but in mm. the film in her bedroom where lots of it takes place she has 17 rabbits which is a metaphor for all the children that she's lost throughout her lifetime and it's just incredibly poignant and provides lots of scenes where they kind of take them out and they play with them together and her and Abigail who's the bedchamber maid who becomes mm. a lady they're together mm. I think that's really works well the poisoning between Abigail and uh, Lady Marlborough is an interesting one it seems it's like the, I think it just shows the intensity of female relationships and jealousy and yeah I think as well this film really showed how women can band together so strongly yeah and can also be the downfall of each other as well yes the beginning of the film they're both talking about how they've been raped both of them Abigail and Sarah and assaulted and you really see this sort of close connection. Oh, yes. I so understand that. That's so shit, and we are powerless against it. But there's this ferocious kind of uniting that they they have right at the beginning, and they actually, that's how she gets the job is because Sarah, you know, mm-hmm. reaches out to her and says, "Yes, work, work for me. Yeah, work closely with me, and I'll help you out." Mm-hmm. And then she mm-hmm. takes that, kind of takes advantage of that. Yeah, and actually, that's very interesting because that happens a lot in, with women. Yeah. You see that all the time. Yeah, there's just intensity yeah. and, like, grittiness of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I think that sort of, the poison ended up being a bit metaphorical for that, that it's, mm. yeah. Horrific. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just as well, a metaphor for being a woman at the time in the 1700s, an absolute grind. If you didn't have any social status, then your life, you know, you had absolutely no rights. Mm. And, you know, Abigail marrying um, Lord Masham. Masham, you know, if you didn't, if you weren't able to do that, then you had such low prospects into what yeah, you could do yeah, yeah, yeah. and achieve yeah I think the final fact that I found out um, following the film was that the names Mrs Morley and Mrs Freeman which is what Sarah and Anne call each other throughout the film and is the case in real life yeah from, definitely their yeah, letters you can yeah. see yeah. Um, it was in order to give them equal ranking so that was their way of communicating with each other mm. and I thought that was a, an interesting detail to have picked out and explored in the film yeah. The second figure for this episode is that, very topically, 80% of New Year's resolutions fail by February. And this comes from Business Insider, and it yes. may be for the US rather than the whole world or the UK, but it's still an interesting mm. sentiment to explore. Definitely. And I think every new year people always ask you know what are your new year's resolutions and several years i would be say things like i'm not making them or i made them in december and started them so by the time january came along i didn't feel as that's good low about i've never done that to do 
Um, and I think as well, it's just, it's another way that we can be really hard on ourselves. Yes. One of, of, one of mine was... Criticise ourselves. What was your, one of yours? <laughs> one of mine was to learn Italian. And I did go to Italian lessons in my third year of university. I missed quite a few of them. Mm. But it, uh, it sort of doubled my contact hours. So I thought it was a good thing to do. Mm. <laughs> and uh, now Duolingo is very much in the cloud of my yeah. phone. Well, on the one hand, my view of of New Year's resolutions is, I think, great. What a great opportunity to reset the year and to start something new. However, we are human, and sometimes we will set ourselves really impossible goals mm-hmm. that by February, you just think, actually, fudge this. I don't want to do this. I don't have the energy to do it because you've gone at it so hard in January. Mm-hmm. And also, can't we set goals every week, every day, every month? Yeah. Whatever it's going to be. We don't necessarily have to do it just in the new year. However, it does feel like an easier time to set new goals, though, in some definitely. ways. I also think it's become a trend, January and dry January. And I know that those are things specific to January, but those are they do come with the new year mm-hmm. thing. They do so just to explain for anyone who hasn't heard about these, Veganuary is just being vegan for, for the whole January. of January. Yeah. Dry January is not having any alcohol for the yeah. whole of January. And a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people. socialising becomes, it becomes much more normal not to drink, which is so cool. Why can't that be the case Throughout the entire year, where people don't question you. I feel like vegan, um, ja- dry January is the only time of the year I can go, I'm not drinking, it's dry Jan. And they're like, oh yeah, fair. So <laughs> fair enough. But if I say the rest of the year, oh, I'm not drinking. Oh no, why? Like, are you want... <laughs> I think that's a bit silly. Yeah. Um, I personally feel like I want to have wine in order to combat January. Sometimes it's just a, what, a quite a hard month. Well, uh, yes, um, <laughs> it is. And I and I I haven't been doing dry January this year, but I've done. I did do dry January two years in a row, um, and loved it. Hmm. I would get to about eight or nine days in and be absolutely gagging to have a drink, <laughs> and then once you reach the halfway point, easy breezy. And this brings me on to an interesting stat. Apparently, by the 12th of January, at 8 past 8 p.m. specifically, is when the most amount of people will give up whatever they've resolved to do. January, whatever they do. You know, the problem is that people set the bar too high and then it's just too hard to maintain. Hmm. I think that if you are going to want to change the way that you do things, make it more reasonable. If you want to get fit, just say, I'm going to go to this specific class once a week mm. and classes can make it easier to stick to that, I think. Mm. And also accountability partners. That's always mm. really good. Go with a friend and then you both have to commit to each other and you don't want to flake out on your friend and then yeah. you keep going. That's really fun to have a buddy to sort of high five. <laughs> um, <laughs> realising that if you don't do anything for a week or two weeks, it doesn't negate six months or five months of being fit Mm -hmm. and just by having the consistency is so much better Mm -hmm. than doing stopping and starting Mm -hmm. yeah that's one of the things i'm excited about for edinburgh my flat is very close to arthur's seat which is the big hill in the middle of Mm. the city and i just can't wait to go for lots of lovely walks and try running up it why not Mm. give it a go and then yeah go to yoga more frequently and i think that there's been a real backlash particularly this year against the whole new year new me people hate it and they hate resolutions and nobody wants to do Mm. anything people are still i think people have still set them but they're maybe not talking about them in the same Mm. way that they have previously Mm. um well definitely and and but the positives are you know things like veganuary has become a huge campaign and last year 
there were 168,000 people that signed up. Only, I think it was only like 60,000 of those were vegetarian. So a lot of them had come as omnivores. Um, and they mm. said that actually a lot of people agreed that it wasn't as bad as they thought it was, mm -hmm. it was going to be. And that going forward, they were going to try and, you know, incorporate more plant-based mm -hmm, foods which into is their great. diet because they realised that they could do it. However, quite funnily enough, um, only 14% of those that took part were male. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of females. Mm. That, but it's, it's, it's I do really think it's easier we... to be vegan now than it has ever been. Definitely. And it is talked about more. Mm. And there are more vegan options. Mm. It's just, it's great to just have that as part of your weekly menu, I guess. Yeah, you know, 70 billion animals are killed a year mm -hmm. for our consumption. That is ridiculous and far too many and basically pooling our resources and draining mm -hmm. our resources. So, you know, any of these kind of uh, campaigns in January that really Thanks. encourage this positivity is great. Because the thing about the veganery is it's not telling anyone to deprive yourself of anything. Even though people always think, oh my God, I can't eat meat, I'm so sad. It's like, no, you're eating, you know, the same, you know, you're eating normally, you're just cutting out animal Certain products. Foods, yeah. Um, and the same with dry January. People, there was a study done by Refinery29 that said actually people who do dry January long term drink less because they realise that they can. Again, it's realising you can. Yeah. Um, and yeah. actually once you get over the initial, when I was doing dry January, I'd be like, oh, I really want to have a drink going out for dinner. I really want to have a drink. I'm entertaining. Oh, I want to have a drink. I'm meeting someone for a dinner one on one and I'm a bit nervous. You get over that initial fear. And then you forget about it, mm. and it's actually fine. Mm -hmm. I guess for some people as well, they having an end date to it, so they they just mm. do it until that point, and then they yeah, as you say, their mm. attitude might change going forward mm. as well. Um, I'd really recommend listening to an episode of Nobody Panic podcast, um, which is about New Year's resolutions. They've got some great tips. And one of them, which I really liked, was to make it positive. And the other thing I'd recommend is an article from Galdem by Rafa Rafiq. And she says that she broke her uh, New Year's resolutions on the 13th of January, which is the day after the 12th of January when most people quit. Um, but she's got some really beautiful Swahili proverbs. And that is what her resolutions are going to be. My favourite of which is, every bird flies with its own wings. Mm. So I really liked that approach of doing it quote-based or proverb-based rather than specific targets mm. and just having a value that you're going to try and be more aligned with. Don't make it so black and white. Yeah. Yeah. The third figure we are talking about today is the cover of Time magazine for the 14th of January and on it is the first boy born in the US to a mother with a transplanted uterus. Yeah. Which is just such a mind-blowing concept. This boy has now turned one. Mm. First question, bit of a consent issue. This baby obviously can't say anything about whether they want to be on the cover of Time magazine or not. I know this is not what the segment is about, <laughs> but isn't, don't you find that a bit... Isn't it a bit intrusive? Or do you think that the issue is... is is bigger than their right to, to say yes or no. Time magazine is a pretty cool... As a naked baby. I mean, it's not showing any... True. ...private parts. Um, I think, anyway, it's a bit I of a moral a, conundrum. I think that's a larger question of, um, you know, does any child deserve to be... I mean, even you could even argue, like, they're all family children. 
That's you know, very true. They don't give consent and you have as had, to whether they're yeah, famous. And you've got people who are have turned 18 and have tried to sue their parents yeah. through social really media posts that they've done over the years really of them as children, which is really interesting. Anyway, what we wanted to talk about in this is just the frontier of fertility treatments, mm. really. And, and just to say that actually the first successful birth um, from a transplanted uterus was actually in Sweden. Um by a woman who was born um, with a syndrome that we'll be talking about in a moment. Um, Are you going to attempt to say it? Uh, she was born without the without a uterus, and she got a uterus from a do uh, from a living donor who was sixty one years old. Um, and then they did in vitro fertilization um, to form eleven embryos, and then eleven. one of them one of them took. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's another moral issue that you could debate is that you know people of faith don't believe in IVF because you're creating embryos, mm-hmm. you know, which are technically potential life, potential lives. I certainly would not feel comfortable having eleven as well. I mean, I know the chances are so slim so of slim. any of those so and she's developing. Well. But can you imagine if they all developed? Don't. But there's. A... I don't think they're implanted all at once. I think they do several rounds. But oh, you know, okay. But there are some mothers who will get you know have four embryos implanted, and four will take. But yeah. they're so rare, you always hear about them. The syndrome that is most common for people to, I guess, consider uterus transplants is something called meyer rokikansky kusterhauser syndrome, which is a congenital uh, syndrome, means that it's present at birth and affects you, therefore, your whole life. And you're born without womb and affects your reproductive system. So some people have some people have completely no uterus, some people have different bits, but... Um, you often don't get a period. You, um... which is interesting. Obviously, like obviously, you, it's very unlikely that you would get that. But lots of people don't find out that they've got this until yeah. all of their friends start getting their periods, yeah. and they just still have it and haven't and haven't. No, and your external genitalia look normal, so you wouldn't know. The first notable sign is yeah, primary amenorrhea. Mm-hmm. So women who have never developed a period. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is what part what is part of this that makes it so difficult because if you had grown up in a family where lots of girls will grow up and want to have their own children I certainly played mummies and babies and weddings and all of that when I was tiny if I had then got to 13 14 and discovered that I am not going to have a period and I don't have a womb and that I may never ever be able to have children that would be such a crazy change in your mind having gone and Mm. then you're also at this very transitional point where you've got a lot of changes happening Mm. in school and your body and the way that you think about yourself and Mm. your relationships it just I cannot even begin to imagine how it feels for somebody to have that news at that point in their life it's also interesting to note that actually most of the women who have it um will have normally functioning ovaries, which mm-hmm. means they'll be able to have children with reproductive assistance, so maybe a surrogate mm-hmm. or, you know, an IVF and extraction mm-hmm. of that. Which is um, why the transplant works. Right, and they also, because they have normal functioning or ovaries, can work. they have normal breast and pubic hair development because those hormones, those female hormones that are controlled somewhat by the ovaries and mm-hmm. part of the sort of pituitary gland feedback loop still occur. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what I wanted to talk about specifically with the baby who's on the front of Time magazine mm. is the person who donated her womb so that this enabled this birth. She had her own two children herself before transplanting and donating her womb. Mm. They've been in contact with each other. They sent letters to each other. And 
obviously it's been a huge emotional journey for everybody involved but I'd really recommend reading this article because it just it's it's very heartwarming it's quite a medical and scientific inc- like just amazing thing to think about but from an emotional and human perspective also mm. incredible that this woman would do that you have a 12 week recovery period mm. and obviously you're not going to have any children yourself. I mean, she was happy with that. She'd had mm. two children. Well, yeah, and the lady who, who donated <clears throat> in Sweden was 61 and had children. Yeah. So obviously was yeah. not looking to have any more children. Yeah. Um, you know the film The Danish Girl? Yes. So, so the first, I think the first recorded writing about a uterine transplant was actually in the 1890s. Um, and then the character in The Danish Girl, I think that was in 1917, mm-hmm. um, and she died from organ rejection. But also we've got to remember that she also had a male body, mm-hmm. um, so it's slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually been tried, I think there have been, a, you know, there have been over 100 years of research leading up to yeah. the, the first birth in 2013. Um, so it's pretty incredible that you can, you're able, like we are able to do that. Yeah. Um, I guess when we were talking about it earlier this week, I think there are certain ways of looking at it. You could argue, you know, honestly, you could argue this is incredible work that scientists can do. However, the amount of money and resources that it would require to transplant a uterus. Mm -hmm. It's estimated $200,000. Right. Which is being covered by the cost of the hospital in America that is doing this trial. Mm but it would not be covered by insurance. So would would the devil's advocate say, wouldn't that be money better spent, arguably, in something like a chronic illness mm. you know, you know, or an autoimmune disorder that really affects people's lives, you know, or cure to cystic fibrosis, for example, which affects millions yeah. of people worldwide and their quality of life? Or I think you could say that to anything. I mean, it's... I think that money is a complicated one when it comes to medicine and research, mm. but how do you put the price on a child? Mm. It's just, it's a very complex thing mm. to Absolutely. think about. And I think that if this were to go forward and be an option for parents who wouldn't I mean, otherwise be able to have children. No, I mean, an option for what? How many people in the world would be able to afford it? So, so, few. so few. And that's so, my point is if it's so few, then. Is it worth developing more? I'm, mm. This is I'm being devil's advocate here. I know. I'm, I'm not at all saying this is my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was told I was be able to carry children, oh my god, I would mm. probably want to have a uterine transplant myself. But mm. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. are we going to? Where are we? Where do we pull the resources? Yeah. And I don't know how it would work in the UK. It's certainly a good thing to raise. Yeah. I don't know where you would go forward from. Because that. actually, you know, you could still have your own children if you harvested eggs from. Yeah, but then as the doctors have said, there Mm. isn't anything that you can replace the experience of being pregnant and giving birth to your own child. There's no, of course not. So that's, and then it's again, where do you put the price? But it would be by by cesarean. Mm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, I think the other thing that I was thinking about is that some of the people who have been involved in this test have had cervical cancer, so they actually have to have the. Because of the immunosuppressant drugs that they have to take after anyone has a transplant so that the body doesn't reject the organ, Mm. the transplanted uterus has to be removed after birth. So they have this, they have the baby, hopefully, Mm. and then they have to have it again. But then I'm, I'm questioning whether it's... 
is it worth women who've got cervical cancer then taking the immunosuppressant drugs that could potentially have their cancer come back as a result of the transplant? Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So this happened to my grandmother. She had one of the earliest liver transplants mm -hmm. and she had because she had liver cancer. Mm -hmm. She then took the immunosuppressant drugs and the cancer came back very quickly. Mm -hmm. And she very sadly passed away at a very young age. But they didn't realise the impact and the implications of that. So I was kind of thinking, how do you get over that aspect of it? There are a lot of questions that this raises. I think but... it's because it's still very early on in, yeah. in actually what we're doing. And also finding live donors. There are so many people who volunteered to donate yes like hundreds of people but also vetting them medically you know yeah. you've got to make sure that this is a person who hasn't mm -hmm. had a history of mm -hmm. i don't know cancer or has doesn't mm -hmm. have their health issues if this trial went, went forward and it became something that was viable and you take out the cost element of it and you had had the cost element is so important though i know <laughs> like okay but yes we're talking about ethics right yes okay, okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah you've had the children that you've wanted to have yeah would you ever consider donating your uterus to another woman um you just without ovaries yes um yeah i mean yeah i don't see why not the reason i ask about the ovaries is obviously you take away your ovaries you go into immediate menopause and then that can have certain repercussions for you as well mm. um i think what i would i think my only concern would be okay risks of that of that sort of invasive surgery without it being a re you know a life-saving reason mm. if you have children yourself what if something goes wrong what if you get sepsis what if there are complications it impacts your life if your children are young mm -hmm. you know maybe if i was you know 61 and my children were already in their 20s and 30s yeah potentially yeah um i think what it comes I down never say never yeah you know, I, I don't think i would i would yeah. rule it out but I want... i'm a full organ donor i literally have every part every mm -hmm. everything Mm -hmm. um so i'm definitely open-minded in that mm. in that respect it's just it's something that i'd never thought would medically be possible I and i still struggle to get my head around the patience and dedication and intelligence that goes into doing something know, like this is really amazing and the fact that you have children who have been mm. born as a result of this mm. is amazing but then i also thought what about the pressure of those, those children they are going to be I think it's be hard to raise them in exactly the same way as any other child. I don't know. I think there's. There, I wonder what. Do you know, know, do what, I, I do think, know what I'm trying to get? I at? know what you're trying to say, and actually, I think the onus is actually more on the mother actually than the child because the child is completely innocent. Yeah. They had absolutely nothing to do with how they were conceived, and to be honest, people who are children who are conceived by IVF, children who are conceived I was by just surrogacy, say that, yeah. all of that stuff, it literally doesn't make a difference yeah. to... But I wonder it if would these... be how the parents reacted to the children. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess think the that's earliest the same with any IVF kind of fifth children. children. There would have been yeah, the Charlotte same... Brown was the first test tube baby. Mm -hmm. And imagine what that was like at the time. I mean, you probably... Groundbreaking. I mean, absolutely, you wouldn't have expected... Yeah. You know, or sperm... Or even... Because of sperm donation, the fact yeah. that you have no idea who your biological father is, but yeah. these sperm banks all over the world that you can just get sperm from and create a baby, mm -hmm. would that baby have any difference in how it's raised? Probably, I mean... Again, it would be the mother who was initiating that, but actually, mm. it's just another child that's yeah had no say in the matter. Mm -hmm. So I don't think so. Lots of ethical and medical questions around this, and yeah, do have mm. a look at the articles. We'll link them in the description. Mm. I just think fertility in any way you look at it is a really, really difficult issue, and I think it's one of those things where you just don't know what it's going to be like until you're in it. Like
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure and we will be taking a short hiatus while we figure out... Great use of words. Yeah, well it's just just an adjustment living in two different cities but we will be back. So hit subscribe if you haven't already. Hit subscribe and we will be keeping you up to date with everything on social media. We also wanted to shout out to Gina Martin, incredible Gina Martin, who was on our podcast uh, in September. Episode 15. Um, and definitely a highlight of the last 30 episodes so far the law against upskirting has passed which is amazing um, amazing and for anyone the, who doesn't all the news on brexit has really kind of clouded it you don't really it's not really in the press as it should be but but we're, we just wanted to say how proud we were because yeah. it's really empowering to see that actually those small little things that you can do as an individual can change the law mm-hmm. and that if anyone now what it means is if anyone takes a photograph up anybody else's skirt, they mm. it is now an illegal act in Shit. England and Wales. And Ryan, her lawyer, and Gina have changed this law, which is going to change people's lives. Yeah. And that is the best news of 2019 so far, for yes. sure. 